Hello listeners, welcome to episode 3 at Sodium Podcast, where we seek to take action through education in the community. Today we are joined by Dr. Amity Manning, who is currently an associate professor at Worcester Polytechnic Institute. She specializes in cellular mechanisms that maintain genome stability and received her PhD at the Jesel School of Medicine at Dartmouth. Thank you for taking the time to join us today. In today's episode, we will be looking to cover the topics of cancer, oncology, and risk factors. We are interested in discussing how certain cancers develop, their real-world implications, and how people can help prevent them. Okay, so our first question is kind of like an intro to cancer. So what characteristics define cancerous cells? So first of all, thank you for having me. It's uh, really fun to have this opportunity to talk to you guys about my research interests. Um, So one of the defining features of cancer cells is that they proliferate inappropriately. So they grow and they divide um, when they really shouldn't be. Um, And that's what leads to the growth and formation of tumors. Um, And that growth can also contribute to, obviously, problems in the area where that tumor is growing. And then I think a common misconception is sort of having to do with, is cancer uh, hereditary versus spontaneous? Yeah, that's a great question. And the answer is... um, The answer is pretty straightforward in that you cannot inherit cancer, um, but what you can inherit are gene mutations that contribute to cancer formation. So there are some genes that have really strong roles in preventing cancer, and if those genes are mutated and you inherit that mutated gene, you are at an increased risk of getting cancer because now none of the cells in your body have a functional gene um, that would normally be preventing that the formation of cancer cells. So if, if a person doesn't have that gene preventing cancer cells, is the same type of cancer likely to occur or is a different type of cancer that a relative had also likely? Yeah, so that's another great question. So um, most of the genes that are well described as being cancer genes, so either genes that are tumor suppressors that normally function to limit tumor growth or oncogenes that function to promote tumor growth. Um, Most of those genes that that are well characterized actually have roles in all cells um, and therefore can can contribute to the formation of all different kinds of cancers. Um, So that being said, there are some strong correlations between mutations in specific genes um, and incidences of distinct types of cancers. So a good example of that is the breast cancer susceptibility genes BRCA1 and BRCA2. So it turns out that those genes are tumor suppressors that have important functions in all of our cells. And yet when those genes are mutated, the person is likely to experience an increase in only certain types of cancers. Um, And so for most of the time, it's not really clear why that is. We don't understand that yet. And then uh, I think there's many different types of cancers and tumors. So what's the difference between malignant and benign tumors? So a benign tumor is um, an overgrowth of cells that form a tumor mass, but that tumor mass remains distinct and separate from the surrounding tissues. A malignant tumor has progressed past that point where it can start to invade the neighboring tissue. Um, This provides challenges both therapeutically, so a benign tumor um, that hasn't invaded the surrounding tissue, um, sometimes it's 
the tumor itself causes fewer problems um, and may also be more amenable to like surgical resection. Right? So if you can cleanly see where the tumor ends and the normal tissue starts, um, it's easy to remove that tumor and perhaps um, cure or, or better treat the patient. But a malignant tumor that started to invade the neighboring tissue um, can create an obstacle for surgical resection, so it can be harder to remove the tumor completely. Um, but it also, if the tumor has started to invade the normal tissue, it's possible that the tumor has progressed um, through that normal tissue and has started to, to set up um, you know, new tumors or microtumors in other areas that may not be immediately detectable. And do benign tumors ever become malignant tumors? Um, so tumors can progress into an evasive state. Um, so that would be moving from a benign tumor to a malignant tumor. Um, but benign tumors, you know, in many cases, where they're positioned is an indication of whether they're, um, whether they're likely to cause problems. For example, a benign tumor that's non-invasive, but perhaps is growing in your brain, could cause significant problems even without being metastatic. Um, and a metastatic tumor that perhaps is, is caught early, um, where surgical resection you know, maybe requires the removal of some surrounding normal tissue, but otherwise is able to remove all of the tumor, um, you know, might be, be more easily treated. Uh, so what defines different stages of cancer and causes varying severity? Yeah, so um, unfortunately the different stages of cancer and, and what characterize them is really different from one cancer type to another. Um, but what is common is that those stages represent um, increased or, or progression of the tumor state, right? So from simple overgrowth of cells where a tumor is formed and maybe it's benign, it's not invaded the surrounding tissue, um, the next stage would include invasion into the normal tissue and then um, the development of a blood supply to help feed that tumor so that it can continue to grow. And then the late stages would represent a tumor that has invaded the normal tissue and maybe begun to metastasize. So cells that have broken off from that main tumor and traveled through the body to, to initiate or nucleate the formation of new tumors. Uh, how does a cancer spread to different parts of the body if it only originated in one area? Yeah, so this is actually um, a really... Um, intricate process where cells, cancer cells need to acquire a number of mutations or changes that first allow them to adapt to their environment so that they're able to grow when they shouldn't. Um, and then they need to acquire an additional ability to become motile. So many of the cells um, that tumors arise from are epithelial in nature and they're not very motile. They're attached to the cells near them. And so in order to be able to invade the surrounding tissue and to metastasize, those cells need to acquire um, the ability to move and invade um, and even squeeze in between adjacent cells that are adhered to each other. Um, it's critical that they gain access to the blood supply um, and that's often how they travel from one site to a distant site. Um, and even that's not the end of the story. So once they get into the blood system, into the circulatory system, um, it's actually a really toxic environment. So blood cells are, are small and they're able to tolerate the shear forces that they experience in the blood. Um, many cancer cells are not. And so that movement into the blood um, 
is significantly compromises the cancer cells viability. So a lot of cancer cells die at that point. Um, but the few that can survive um, and eventually make their way out of the blood system, so this is a process called extravasation. So they need to squeeze through the cells of, of, um, that make up the blood vessel. Um, and then they need to reestablish an environment that's permissive to tumor cell growth. And sometimes that um, means increased proliferation. Often that means redeveloping a, a blood supply that allows that new tumor to continue to grow. Um, so there's a lot of obstacles um, that a cancer cell must overcome, first in just initially forming a tumor, but then in being able to break off from that main tumor mass um, and set up shop somewhere else in the body. So different types of cancers have varying frequencies in patients. So what are the most frequent types of cancer and does that have do the specific types of cancer have to do with how easily it is for cells to reproduce in that region? Yeah, so there's a lot of research into trying to understand why cancers why some cancers are more prevalent than others. Um, so some of the most common cancers are um, skin cancer, lung cancer, colon cancer, liver cancer. Um, and one of the things that's common about all of these types of cancers is these are tissues or organs that um, have a lot of cell growth. Um, and so maybe we'll, we'll get into this a little bit more later, but um, one of the prerequisites for a cell, a normal cell to become cancerous is that it needs to acquire mutations. Um, and one way that cells can acquire mutations is when that cell duplicates its genome in preparation for division. So the more divisions, the more cell growth that a tissue experiences, the higher the likelihood that cells within that tissue can acquire mutations that might someday lead to cancer. Um, and so, so yes, there definitely seems to be a link between the proliferative capacity of a, of a tissue or an organ and the incidence of cancer. Um, but another feature that's common with all of those um, organs where these most common cancers arise is that they're all exposed to agents that are potentially carcinogenic. So for example, our lungs, we might breathe in chemicals or pollutants um, that can induce damage. Similarly for our digestive system, so where the digestive system is exposed to all sorts of things that could, could cause DNA damage. Um, our skin is exposed to UV light, which we know to be a carcinogen. Um, and so it's not quite so easy to tease apart, um, you know, experimentally in a human body, um, which components of the, the increased likelihood of cancer come from proliferative capacity versus exposure to carcinogens. Does cancer have any common symptoms that people start to realize they have cancer after? Yeah, so this is another um, example of how Different cancers really are, in many ways, completely different diseases. Um, so I think it would be uh, maybe irresponsible to suggest that that all cancers might have a similar, um, you know, first sign. But it is important to um, pay attention to things that are different. So abnormalities um, in the way your body's behaving, and this is part of why, um, you know, having well visits, seeing your doctor regularly. Um, discussing changes are all important um, because one of our strongest um, approaches to treating cancer is early diagnostics. And so the, the sooner we can identify cancer cells, 
um, and treat or remove them, the higher the likelihood of success. So while there's not one underlying symptom, um, changes in the way your body behaves can, can indicate a problem and is worth um, talking to your doctor about. Uh, so going back to our first question, uh, how can cancer cells divide uncontrollably and ignore sort of molecular signals for mitosis, such as cyclin complex formation? Yeah, so this is um, this question is actually right up my alley. So this is what my lab is very interested in understanding. Um, and what we know is there are two things that regulate whether or not a cell enters a new cell cycle and divides. And those are tumor suppressors, whose job it is to kind of hold the cell in place and wait for signals to initiate a new cell cycle. Um, and proto-oncogenes, whose job it is to receive those signals um, either from outside of the cell or, or inside of the cell to initiate proliferation. And so an analogy that I like to use is that of a car. So a proto-oncogene is like the gas pedal. It moves the car forward. And a tumor suppressor is like a brake. So it restricts the car's movement. And so really, in order to proliferate uncontrollably, um, cancer cells need to abrogate control of both the gas pedal, so the gas has to be on all the time. But you can imagine if you have your foot on the gas pedal and you also have your foot on the brake, you're still not going to go very far. And so similarly for a cancer cell, if they have gained oncogene activity, so their foot's always on the gas, so they can proliferate even without receiving signal from, from the external environment, they're still not going to go very far. They're not going to proliferate very much as long as tumor suppressors are intact. And so abrogating that tumor suppressor function, so taking the foot off the brake, um, is a critical early step in tumor genesis. So now the cell is proliferating without receiving, um, you know, maybe growth factor signaling that, that would normally tell a cell that the conditions are favorable, that they should continue and enter into a new cell cycle. Um, they're gonna do that irrespective of the signaling it's received and the tumor suppressors are not there to restrict that activity. I researched a little about what you research here at WPI, and I would like to ask how does genome instability relate to cancer, and how can we limit genome instability? Yeah, so genomic instability is a feature of cancer cells that describes their inability to maintain a stable genome during cell division. And so um, what we know for normal cells is when they enter a new cell cycle, they need to first duplicate their entire genome. They do this with pretty high fidelity, so there's very few mistakes that are made when they're copying the genome. And then they enter mitosis when they prepare to divide, and that duplicated genome is divided in half to make two identical daughter cells. Cells that exhibit genomic instability the way cancer cells do have defects um, either in their capacity to accurately duplicate the genome or in their capacity to separate that genome equally. And so my lab is primarily focused on that second type of genomic instability, um, sometimes called whole, whole chromosome instability. Um, and so what happens with cancer cells is sometimes they'll enter mitosis, they've duplicated their genome, and maybe even they've, do they've done a good job at it, but then when the cell goes to divide, Instead of dividing those chromosomes equally, um, there's an error in the segregation or the sorting of one or more of those chromosomes. And so the result is two new cells that are not identical to each other and are not identical to the parent cell that they came from. 
So if you imagine a tumor mass that has gone through many cell divisions and now there's thousands or even millions of tumor cells, and these errors in chromosome sorting have been happening at some fairly high frequency, you very quickly get a mass of tumor cells that are all a little bit genetically different from each other. Um, so this can promote tumor evolution, so it can allow the tumor cell to adapt to its environment. Right? Some of those um, errors in chromosome sorting might result in a tumor cell that grows a little faster or is you know, capable of, of motility, of metastasizing. Um, it can also lead to tumor cells that may respond differently to therapy. And so a tumor that has a high degree of chromosomal instability is more likely to exhibit um, drug resistance. So you imagine a tumor mass, all the tumor cells are a little bit different from each other, and now when you treat that patient with a therapy, maybe it kills 99.9% .9 of all those tumor cells, or even more. But those few cells that have a genetic change that allow them to survive that therapy, they can go on to repopulate the tumor. And so this is what clinically we refer to as relapse. And so that genomic instability um, has significant clinical implications. And so you asked, how can we limit genomic instability? Um, I guess the simple answer to that is we don't understand well enough yet how it's regulated in normal cells um, and how it is compromised in cancer cells to know how to correct that process. Uh, so looking more at like prevention, uh, I think smoking has long been sort of associated with uh, lung cancer. So what are some other things that can increase risk of cancer? So as I mentioned before, cancer cells um, arise from an accumulation of mutations and tissues that have high rates of proliferation have the potential to acquire more mutations, right? Simply because they're proliferating more, they can acquire more mutations. And so conditions that increase um, tissue turnover to result in more proliferation can also um, help promote cancer. So for example, you mentioned smoking. So for sure, those carcinogens can induce mutations um, in, in lung tissue and lead to um, the development of cancers. But there's actually a um, cooperation with um, things like alcohol. So alcohol can cause tissue damage and that can increase proliferation. So you couple that with smoking and now you are smoking, you're inducing mutations. Maybe those cells aren't ever going to divide so you're not going to keep acquiring mutations. But now you couple that with drinking where you're damaging tissue and now those mutated cells, they're promoted to proliferate. And so the two can work together to increase the frequency of cancer. And so there's other examples of that as well. Um, if there's chronic inflammation or, or chronic wounds that are going to promote tissue damage um, and lead to increased proliferation, that's intrinsically going to increase mutation acquisition as well. And then for how can we identify early signs of cancer and when should people be worried enough about those signs to go get screened for cancer? Yeah, so, so as a basic researcher, I'm not sure I'd be the best person to, to answer those clinical questions. Um, and I would, I think I'd default to the idea that, um, you know, if you notice differences in the way your body is behaving or, or the way it looks, you know, for example, skin cancer is very visual and often you can see changes 
um, and the pigmentation or the size or shape of marks on your skin, and those are all indications that you should get a clinician's um, opinion. Uh, so you mentioned uh, the function of tumor suppressor genes and oncogenes. So what are some other molecular or cellular mechanisms that work to prevent cancer? Yeah, so um, one thing that I want to highlight is really how remarkable our cells are at preventing mutations from accumulating. And so mutations can happen just as random errors when our DNA is copied in preparation for cell division. Um, and, you know, so the machinery that copies our DNA makes a mutation about one in, I think, 100,000 um, bases. So not very often at all, but we have like 300 billion bases of DNA in every single one of our cells. And so, you know, even at that really low rate of introducing errors, um, over all of those bases, that's a significant number of errors that could potentially be introduced. But our cells also have a proofreading mechanism, right? So the same machinery that's responsible for copying our DNA, for making a, you know, an identical copy of our genome, is able to detect when it's made a mistake and to correct that mistake. And so all of these thousands of, of potential mutations, these mistakes that are happening, the vast majority of them are identified and fixed before the cell makes it to mitosis. Um, so I would say that that is probably the most robust mechanism that our cells have for limiting cancer. So it's making all of these mistakes, but at the end of the day, an average cell um, might end up with, you know, after all of these thousands of potential mutations, they might only end up um, completing the cell cycle with one or two or three small changes. And not all of those changes are going to lead to functional consequences, right? So um, the second thing that, that limits cancer development is the, the proliferative capacity, right? So some of our cells have a finite number of times that they divide and they will differentiate. So differentiated cells will never re-enter a new cell cycle. And that's a great preventative mechanism. So a cell that has acquired even a handful of mutations, once it differentiates, it's not at risk of forming a tumor anymore because it's not going to continue to proliferate. Um, and then the final thing that's, that's probably the least well understood is the ability of our immune systems to identify and destroy cancer cells. So I commented back in the beginning how you know, the ability of a cancer cell to metastasize requires it to overcome all of these obstacles. And one of those obstacles is it needs to be able to evade the detection of the immune system. And so normally our immune system will identify and attack and destroy cancer cells. Um, and those cancer cells need to either um, kind of camouflage themselves so they're not detected by the immune system or actively inhibit the immune cells. So when the immune cells come, it's, they're not able to destroy them. Um, and that is, you know, that's a big part of how cancer cells are kind of kept at a minimum. And again, that's, you know, an active area of research that I think has a lot of potential that's still not well understood. So talking more about treatment of cancer, what makes cancer cells so, diffi so difficult to treat and eradicate? Yeah, so um, 
One of the things that makes cancer cells very difficult to treat is even though they have very clear differences from the normal cells that surround them, they still have a lot of the same requirements, right? So a drug that targets a cancer cell is probably going to target and damage normal cells as well. There's obviously exceptions to that, um, but a number of the chemotherapy options that are available now, um, they kill cancer cells because they target cell proliferation. But cancer cells are not the only cells in our bodies that are proliferating, right? So a lot of the side effects that we see from, from chemotherapies are side effects to other proliferating tissues. So intestinal distress, um, because our digestive system has lots of rapidly proliferating cells. Um, immune system defects, because our immune system is, is, you know, our blood cells are rapidly proliferating. Hair loss, again, because hair follicles um, are, are very proliferative. And so trying to not just figure out what kills cancer cells, but what can kill cancer cells without harming the normal cells in the patient um, is really kind of that critical distinction, that, that kind of perfect middle ground where you can identify a drug target that's essential in the cancer cells, um, but non-essential in normal cells. We kind of refer to this as, as the Achilles heel. That's kind of the gold standard that, that everyone doing um, cancer cell biology research or, or clinical research is trying to find. Uh, so you just meant, talked about this a little bit, but uh, what are some risks associated with certain cancer treatment approaches? Yeah, so so damage to normal tissue, um, for sure, is, is a significant risk and something that clinicians have to be aware of. And this can be influenced by, um, you know, the cancer treatment itself, but also the overall health of a patient. So sometimes patients are more able to tolerate the side effects um, and so maybe more responsive to the drug because they can stay on it longer. Um, there's also a lot of um, clinical approaches utilize combination therapies um, and there is more and more push towards what are considered personalized therapies where the cancer cells are um, perhaps genotypes so we can identify specific mutations or changes um, that can be targeted. Um, so instead of just looking at drugs that will stop proliferating cells, we can, for example, look at drugs that specifically target a gene that maybe is expressed at a very high level in cancer cells. So they would be particularly susceptible to those drugs. In a lot of cancer cases, they have to go and surgically remove the tumor. So what criteria make it, makes a tumor inoperable? So a tumor can be inoperable based on positioning, right? So, so if, again, if we think of a, an example of a brain tumor, um, it may be possible that the tumor cannot be resected or surgically removed without damaging um, normal tissue. A tumor could also be inoperable if it has progressed to an invasive state or a metastatic state. And so some of the limitations there are limitations in detection. So if a, if a primary tumor, so if that initial tumor mass has metastasized, it may be possible that that tumor mass can be removed, but those metastatic cells, the cells that have traveled through the circulatory system and set up shop elsewhere in the body may not be large enough to detect. So we may not know where they are and therefore we can't surgically remove them. So in, in cases like that, or, or even in, in earlier cases where we want to prevent um, any chance of metastatic cells forming new tumors, um, often a combination of surgical resection of the primary tumor together with some sort of chemotherapeutic approach um, 
is the best option. Uh, so are cancerous cells likely to return after treatment? So a lot of this depends on, on how progressed the, the tumor has been and on the type of the tumor. So, so some cancers um, are much more likely to be metastatic. Um, others are, you know, the cancer cells are less motile. And often by biopsying that initial tumor, um, clinicians will have an idea of whether or not that tumor mass or cells in that tumor mass are likely to have acquired changes that could lead to, me to metastasis. Um, positioning also matters. So a tumor that's positioned close to a circulatory system or to lymph nodes um, might have a higher um, likelihood of, of having been able to gain access to that circulatory system and therefore might be at a higher risk for metastasis. So are there any newer approaches to cancer treatment? Uh, I think a lot of people have heard of like CRISPR-Cas9. So Yeah, so, so CRISPR is a really powerful approach to um, alter the genome. So it's a great way to um, introduce genes or to um, move or replace mutated genes. Um, but currently, its use in the clinic is limited by our ability to put it into specific cells. Right? So for a CRISPR-based approach, for example, if we wanted to remove uh, an oncogene from a cancer context, um, we'd have to know which cells to introduce it to. Um, if we wanted to replace a tumor suppressor, we'd have to know which cells um, to replace them in. And so these type, kinds of therapies might be most um, effective in those patients that have inherited a mutated cancer gene. Right? So perhaps that's an opportunity where replacing or repairing the mutated gene um, might be appropriate to prevent or decrease cancer risk. Another place where um, there's, I think, great potential for cancer therapies is in cancer immunotherapy. So, you know, our, our kind of growing understanding of how the immune system is able to identify and um, target cancer cells means that if we can help the immune system identify those cancer cells or more efficiently destroy those cancer cells, um, additional therapy may not be necessary, right? So it's kind of just giving the immune system the boost it needs to clear the cancer cells for us. Um, and so there's a lot of research right now in looking at um, cancer immunotherapy and how that might be utilized. And there's been some successes and some, uh, you know, less successful approaches. And, and it's really not clear yet which cancer types are most likely to benefit from immunotherapy. You talked a little bit about chemotherapy and how that works. And then I also had a question about how radiation therapy works. Yeah, so radiation actually induces DNA damage. So it's a little counterintuitive. Um, we know that cancer cells um, can form from increased mutation, right? So they're acquiring mutation as they proliferate. Um, so radiation will generate crosslinks, so it'll link DNA um, in ways that make it difficult to accurately copy the DNA, um, but it does so in a way where there is just so much DNA damage that the cells are not viable. Um, so again, radiation, you know, if you were to radiate an entire person, that would be very dangerous. You'd be introducing mutations um, in normal tissues, and that could actually promote 
tumorigenesis. And so the, the strength of radiation is our ability to target or focus that radiation specifically to regions where we know that the tumor is, right? So we can induce these fatal levels of DNA damage um, that are gonna kill those cancer cells when they try to proliferate in the presence of that damage. Does radiation therapy to one specific part of that body, part of the body, uh, have any have really ne- negative effects for that region? So there have been clinical studies to look at long-term effects of radiation therapy, um, and based on some of those studies, there are certainly um, cancer contexts where radiation is not um, not effective, and one of those would be in patients that have um, an inherited mutation in a tumor suppressor whose job it is to monitor DNA damage. Um, So these patients would be very susceptible to um, acquiring radiation-induced mutations that can contribute to cancers later in life. So those patients would not be um, good candidates for radiation therapy. So would radiation therapy also be more used on younger, on older patients because they have less time for those cells to mutate? Um, that's an interesting question. I, I don't think it's that clear cut. Um, I think it, it's really context dependent, not only on patient age, but also um, on the approach to introduce the radiation. Um, so the specificity with which radiation can be applied Um, is really high, so we can target very specifically um, which cells are receiving radiation, um, and also the proliferative capacity of of the tissue. I think that about wraps it up. Uh, Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Manning. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. With cancer continuing to devastate families worldwide, it is essential that we work to cure it. The Jimmy Fund is a nonprofit charity based here in Massachusetts that partners with the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute to help save the lives of and inspire hope in cancer patients worldwide. If you are interested in donating to help cancer patients and survivors, please visit jimmyfund.org or raise further awareness of these topics through sharing this podcast or discussing these topics with family and friends today. With more knowledge, we can combat these issues and promote a healthy society. Thank you.